0: Well, good evening to each one. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, We'll be looking across that this evening. For some of you, this is uh, the first time of this set of meetings you've been here, so I'll do a slight uh, bit of review. Uh, The first evening we talked about the relevancy of the gospel, what it is and why it's important for us to know it. Saturday night we talked about the enduring nature of the gospel, how it's Not just a one-time action, it's something that continues through our life. And then this morning, what are the ways that the gospel applies specifically to our lives and the way we live? This evening, in looking at the life-giving gospel, we'll be looking at how do we hold the gospel in our hands and then spread it to the world around us as we live, and thereby giving life to those around us. As people, we're transformed by the work of the gospel And because of that transforming work, we must be people who pursue that spreading. We must spread this life to others. And I hope to argue from 2 Corinthians 5 here that the gospel should be the central motivation for that spreading and also the central message. It's because of the gospel in us that we spread it, and it's the gospel that we spread. The spreading of the gospel includes... Everything from world missions, people who go to unreached groups. Local missions, people who reach out to their local areas. The mission of a church to its members is life-giving. Even parenting, as you parent your children, you're hoping to preach to them the gospel as you parent them so that they grow up in a life-giving way. In, in reality, this life-giving way is any relationship that we have or develop we should be ultimately seeking to give life to those relationships and to bring those around us to behold the God that we've spoken about in the gospel, to see him as we see him, and hopefully that they then can be transformed as we'll see in this passage. So 2 Corinthians 5, I'll be reading from uh, the Holman Christian Standard. It it, uh, brings out some things in here that I... Uh, really like to emphasize <clears throat> for we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked, indeed, we groan while we are in this tent. Burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, and we are confident. And satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade people. We are completely open before God, and I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you may have a reply to those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we have a sound mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way, Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In him. Let's pray. Father again as we open your word and as we seek to know more about you may we center ourselves on Christ and on his sacrifice that sets us free from the bondage of our sinful world and and Father may we in response to our freedom be people who Plead with others to come to the life-giving truth. Father, open our hearts and may these words speak to us. We pray this through Christ. Tonight I'd like to look at a foundation of spreading the word and then look at three points of the way that is spread. Uh, I think we see two reasons that we're to spread the word. And then we see a glorious task in the end of this passage. The foundation is found in the final verse there, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so as we spread, the foundation, the cause with, with which we move from should be the gospel of Christ. Everything we do and everything we say must be rooted in the truth of God's gospel. We should not fool ourselves into think that we can be smart or have a proper system or create ways of compelling people to come to Christ outside of the gospel. The gospel must be the central and the only torch that we hold up to people. And we must be careful to portray Christ as primary, as first. All other appeals need to be secondary. If our appeal is to a person's morality outside of Christ, we will lead them to morality and not Christianity. If our appeal is to an eternal safety net that is devoid of a relationship of Christ, we are placing man at the highest point and not Christ. And if we present God as one who simply gives his children everything they could want and satisfies their earthly desires then again we place the joy of man at the highest point. We must present the surpassing glory of Christ as the foundation and the focal point of the Christian life. It is the life-giving message that we have. Anything else is simply man-pleasing. So on that foundation, let's look at two reasons that we see in this passage. The first reason is uh, found... In verse 11 where Paul says therefore we know the fear of the Lord we know the fear of the Lord we have seen Christ we've beheld him and his glory is made known to us and part of his glory does bring about a fear in us because there is an end time that we know is coming Initially, I was going to simply use verses 11 through 21, but it's referring back to what Paul is saying in the previous verses, where he says, we are are not at home in our bodies. I think we all have a realization of that. Paul is explaining that the reality we experience in the body is temporary and not what we were created to experience. And this is what we see happening in the fall. That which was perfect, that which was created, was broken. And man was no longer in the existence that God created them to exist in. And in the end of life, then, is a meeting with Christ. So we're not who we were meant to be, but we have a way of being there. And in the end, we have this meeting with Christ where we will be rewarded or judged as to how we lived our lives. Whether we pursued that which we were intended to pursue in this life. And so as as a result of knowing the fear of God and knowing what is coming at the end, that, that is the judgment, we persuade people, I think, of two things. And we've referred to the one that life is not what we were created to live. In verse two, it says, "You may know." Says we groan, longing for that dwelling. Uh, You may know what this groaning feels like if you've gone through a remodeling project while you were living in the house. Things are not quite what they should be uh, until it's complete. The same is for us. As as we view our life, we'll see that it's. Not quite complete, and we'll long for that time. The second is that judgment will come. you will give an account it 's as if you're going through uh, if there's going to be an inspection at your workplace, many of us in our in our places have inspections, whether you 're a farmer or a, or a contractor who OSHA shows up to, or any of those things, you know that inspection is coming and Maybe you find out the day of and you scurry around attempting to make certain that things are the way they should be. There is a certain urgency that comes from knowing judgment will come. The fear of the Lord carries the idea of being alarmed or exceedingly frightened. And If we think about our natural fears, each of us have one. It may be rodents or snakes or spiders or height or water each of us have individual ones, and we kind of laugh at each other's, but we've got our own. And we go to extremes to protect ourselves from those fears. Um, I, I've seen people, you know, there's a little spider on the floor, and somebody's on the bed. You know, uh, it's just a little spider. But we go, to our, we go to extremes to protect ourselves from the fear. And that should be the same measure at which we seek, uh, seek Christ as the remedy for the fear of God. We must see Christ as the judge in Proverbs one seven and as the ultimate holy one in Revelation fifteen four. So the knowing of Christ as judge and as holy should propel us to be certain uh, of our calling. The second reason then is in verse fourteen, for Christ's love compels us. Again, the simple story of the gospel. Christ came and took the penalty of our sins so we could be reconciled to him. It was not our worth that he purchased, but it was again giving us the ability to behold him as judge and as holy and worship him in truth. In the gospel, in knowing this simple gospel, the way we view people is Transformed. The, uh, from the text, it says, we do not know them in a purely human way. And Paul uses an example of his own life before he was giving a d- divine perspective. Christ was nobody to him. He was uh, a charlatan, if you would say. And Christians were merely a heresy that needed to be destroyed. Upon receiving a divine perspective, Christ became his glorious treasure And the gospel became that which he wanted to share. And people became people who needed the gospel, not not people who needed to be controlled. And so we must view people not from a human perspective, but from a divine perspective. Christ's love of humanity drove him to the cross. And in the same way, we also must love others. Those we view as unlovable, may be our neighbors in heaven. And we must treat each person we meet as having that potential. mean, the potential that we see if we, is found there in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. We need to be careful not to place uh, a filter on somebody that limits them and makes them, in our eyes, unworthy of the gospel because in Christ's eyes, in the divine perspective, all are worthy of the gospel and all are called to that. And with these truths that knowing that judgment is coming, we must compel people to come to Christ and that in Christ's love he calls We have a sobering task. We are ambassadors of God in the business of reconciling the world to Him through the gospel. An ambassador is one who represents in the absence of another. In diplomacy, the ambassador is tasked to communicate for the country he represents. In America, our chief ambassador is the Secretary of State, and he or she, as is the case now, oversees the business of maintaining good relationships with other countries. It's their job is to maintain a network of diplomacy. He or sh- he, she or any of her department are speaking the words of the president when they speak to another country. And regardless of their beliefs or political aff- affiliations, they don't speak their mind. They speak the mind of the leader. They speak the mind of another. And in the same way, while we will give Christ the ability to to speak audibly to people, he has ordained us to be his mouthpiece. And when we speak, it is to be the speech of Christ. And we see that in verse 20. The idea of being an ambassador should have two effects. Number one, we will be very cautious What we say. Many a diplomatic mess has been created when an ambassador spoke out of turn or didn't say what he was supposed to. So we must be very cautious in what we call people to and what we value, what people see of us. If we truly are an ambassador of Christ, we'll be visible and it'll be audible in what we say. And the second effect is we'll study the Word of God to better know and understand what He wishes us to speak. How many times have I or you been in a situation where you had the opportunity to speak, but you didn't quite know the words? You didn't have the words of Christ firmly in your mind. We were unsure and said nothing. And the opportunity to speak Christ's words went (coughs) past us. We must know His words so we can properly represent them. The main message of Christ's ambassador or us as Christ's ambassador, is be reconciled to God through Christ. Verse 18 states that everything is from God in response to the new things in verse 17. So the transformation that occurs in a person's life because of the gospel is of God. And it it goes on to say that the transformation or reconciliation is through Christ. Verse 19, that is in Christ Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself. And again, there are two ways that this occurs that we see in the text. In Christ, our sins are not counted against us. If you again apply this to uh, the world of of national relationships, uh, for many years, America has had no diplomatic relations with Iran. Our government has never recognized the religious leaders that overthrew the Shah. It was an illegal act, and it separates our countries, and it maintains that separation. Our sin is that illegal act that separates us from from God, and in Christ's sacrifice, that separation is removed. And so it's through Christ's sacrifice that we have access to God. And the second way that occurs is that this message is then spread by humans. Redeemed humans spread the gospel as a message of reconciliation to God. Verses 19 and 20, He committed the message of reconciliation to us, and we plead on His behalf. We don't speak for ourselves. We don't speak our own gospel. We speak the message of Christ's gospel. While it is God who actually does the transforming work that we see in verse 17, He chooses to use us to spread this good news. And so for each of us, the call of the gospel should compel us to share it with others. The gospel of Christ is life-giving, and each of us have been a recipient of that life. And as a bearer of that life, we must be committed to the spreading of this life to those around us. Too often, instead of being the shining beacon on the hill, We have been content to huddle in our valley. The gospel in us demands that we leave the valley and be the ministers and ambassadors of this great gospel. With Christ as our foundation, let us plead with those around us to consider the coming judgment and to seek Christ as the loving, life-giving refuge. May we pray. Father, again, we thank you for your gospel and may it bring about in us a desire to share that life with those around us, with those that are close to us and with those that may be far away. May you raise up people who care about their neighbors, who care about people on the other side of the world and who, being transformed by the gospel, seek to give that life to others. Pray that you would bless the remainder of our time here. We pray this through Christ. Amen.